0: Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona,
1: it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to Collaborative Connections radio show and podcast sponsored by KLM. I'm your host, Kelly Lorenzen, and we are live in the Phoenix Business Radio X studio, and we have one guest in studio and two on Zoom, so we're excited to have everybody on today. I created Collaborative Connections to gather people together. I think that we do better together. We build communities better if we do business with people we like, know, and trust. So... This show is a little a little tiny bit different, but, but same because you guys all know each other and all friends and have collaborated over the last 25 years. But my dad just retired from 50 years of patient care, so I wanted to bring him on and highlight his career and have two of his best friends on as well to talk about the journeys together that you've had. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nick Morrison to the show. Thank you. Thank you for being on. And Tony Jakubowski, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Kelly. Hi, Nick.
0: I'm happy to be here.
2: And Joe Zygmunt, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, good afternoon. Great to see you guys. Uh, Happy to be here as well.
2: Thank you all. So I'm going to jump right in. Nick, I'm going to call you Nick for the duration of the show. How about, that's weird, (laughs) instead of dad. (laughs) Tell us about your, I want to hear your journey for those people who don't know your journey. Why did you get into medicine and what led you to stay in it for 50 years (laughs) along the way?
1: I got lucky in high school. I decided that I wanted to do medicine, which is pretty unusual because most people don't know what they really want to do, particularly these days. They don't know what they want to do when they finish college, let alone in high, still in high school. So I decided that's what I want to do, and that put me on a path that was re- very straightforward. There was a pre-medical curriculum that you went through in college. Everything was laid out for you with a few exceptions, and then you went on to medical school and then to residency and then uh, practice since there. As I said, I was lucky to to know that from the outset because it made it took away a lot of decisions that you would otherwise have to have to make, and and probably took away some of the uh, the anxiety that I know young people really have now about what they want to do.
2: It is. It feels like a forced thing these days. Of you got to make a decision. You got to make a decision, and then they get worse. It seems like they have more anxiety about it. More yeah. anxiety there's not too many people i think anymore that know from the onset what they want to do for the rest of their lives
1: well no and they don't stay in like we used to when when i was when i was in college i was on a pre med path and i stayed there for the whole 50 years people don't don't do that anymore which is in in some ways healthier than what we did before
2: mm-hmm. i would think so i would think so Well, okay, Tony, you're up. Tell us your journey and what led you to what you're doing now.
3: Kelly, can I just add on to uh, Nick's story? Because you told me this just a couple of weeks ago when you were a young boy, you were running around with not such a great crowd. And then you switched over to a a little stricter school. And the comment you made, which I thought was really important, is it was suddenly okay to be smart. It was okay to be a smart kid in a school. And I think you were lucky in lots of ways, but moreover, you were lucky because somebody told you that and it's okay because the previous group that you ran with, where are those guys now? Because you ran down that list before, where are they now?
1: Some of them are still alive. Most of them are in jail.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And or uh, have that, been. I think that's important with these kids, kids today. And, uh, yeah, uh, when we had our four kids coming through high school, it was uh, their guidance counselor. What do you want to be? You got to know. You got to declare. And there's so much pressure on the guidance counselors to get kids graduated out and to declare and what they have to do. And I'm 58. I got to tell you, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up.
1: I don't. That doesn't surprise me a bit. <laughs> yeah,
3: and if I was in school now, I'm. I'm sure I'd be on all kinds of riddling or things like that. When. Uh, now that I'm 58 and I have some money, I'm just an eccentric entrepreneur. But really, uh, the shiny spoon in front of me, is it catches my eyes all the time. And that's what Joe and I spend most of the time on the phone with uh, uh, all week long. Hey, did you hear about this? What I asked you about yesterday, Joe? Yesterday.
0: Jeez, the conversations <laughs> run together. Um, there was a it's shiny spoon. It was about the junkyard. That's right. It was about the junkyard, and it was about how... Um, The owner of a junkyard has to deal with um, uh, listing his assets uh, and how they get depreciated over time, because if he buys a car that was totaled by the insurance company and then sells it off piece by piece, how is all the accounting and everything done with regard to something like that? Obviously, a a complicated question, um, but it certainly gave us about a 20-minute chat (laughs) about some real interesting things. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Boy, you guys have a lot of time on your hands. Jeez.
3: <laughs> well, these are the things that still plague me at 58 years old. And uh, now that my kids are in their mid-20s, we're talking about this all the time with them, that uh, they don't need to know. What they need to do is bring their passion to an idea, passion to an opportunity, and then see where that takes them. And that's pretty how much how I got to know uh, Nick and Joe on the, uh, on the call here today. I was a laser salesman. That's what I am primarily. I think everybody's in sales. And so I was selling a laser. My phone rang. and The doctor on the other end said, uh, hey, can you come to New York? I have this idea. And I said, sure. Uh, I don't know what a saphenous vein is. And I don't know, but I know what a laser is. And uh, we flew out there and the endovenous laser ablation market uh, was born. And uh, we just ran hard and fast to uh, uh, make it make it something. And in between there, there were other opportunities, like I showed you prior to the show with TTTS. And we do a lot of prostate business, prostate ablation, um, a lot of ENT work. And so while I never graduated from medical school and literally rode the short bus most of my life, I get to spend a lot of time with uh, really uh, smart people Get invited to calls like this. And so I, too, am blessed for uh, people who guided me along the way.
2: I think they, they say now that the, you are the sum of the five people that you spend the most time with. And I think that's, you know, kind of the theme, right. That you're saying is if you would have stuck around with those people in middle school, then that's the direction you go. If you get put in other situations, right. If you're open, Tony and, and teaching your kids the same thing that I am, right. That follow your passions, do something that you really love and, make money at it, you know, find a way to make money at it, but then get to be around, you know, be passionate around other people that are passionate and you leaving yourself open to that as, as you say, getting all those calls, right. Is a really Call- cool way to.
3: Call- I like to have a caveat to what you just said. I don't think you should necessarily follow what you love. What you love can be lots of things like building a business, but you can build a business in junkyards as Joe and I talked about. And inventing a new longer lasting light bulb or a hydration station at, at the Sturgis uh, rock concert. So, building those, I don't, those are all different things and ideas that I have. I have probably a business idea every uh, two or three times a day. I'm running, I run into that the place where you drown in seas of opportunity. There's too many things. And I like too many things. So there's one passion. I don't have one passion. My passion is, uh, and my fear as I get old, is that I'll lose curiosity about something. How does that work? How does a welder do that? How do things happen like that? So I'm not teaching my kids to do what they love. I'm teaching them to cope with life, the ups and downs, spend as much time doing something that they love, but primarily they're responsible for food, clothing, and shelter. And what's not on that list, it's only three things, is a cell phone, a vacation in Bonaire, scuba diving (laughs) gear, a convertible, a Lexus, whatever. It's food, it's clothing, and shelter. And if you have to cover your food, clothing, and shelter by selling miles and miles of fiber optic filament to a guy like Nick, then that's what you have to do. Then you bring your passion and find something else that's exciting to you uh, to do uh, on the weekends or something.
2: There you go to build it, Joe. Okay, your turn. You're up. Tell us. Tell us the journey. Tony went all over. Hopefully, people at least <laughs> followed along a little bit with his journey. I
1: I fell asleep about ten <laughs> minutes ago, so <laughs> it, was,
0: it was definitely a circuitous path. I'll say that. But that's what you know is fun about knowing Tony. Um, you know, as he said you know, we're, we're all in the medical field. And yesterday we're talking junkyards, right? So <laughs> uh, I got a kind of an interesting start, if you would, which is I went to the University of Pennsylvania, got my degree back East. Um, and he wants you to be sure
1: and know that he got an Ivy League education.
0: Did I slip that in there? I'm sorry. I think so. Yeah, um, I heard it. <laughs> but, but the long and short of it is I got this degree in biology. And then I was like, well, what do you really do with a degree in biology? And a lot of the folks that I were in school with either were doing pharmaceutical sales or they were going into medical school. And frankly, neither one of them were that appealing to me. And um, I wound up, believe it or not, spending my first summer cutting grass with a friend of mine in, in a landscaping business which was really um, an impressive job, as mom and dad used to call it, when I was kicking around the house wearing shorts <laughs> all summer. <laughs> but what it led me to was eventually taking a, a position with a company that was specializing in uh, diagnostic ultrasound. And with the diagnostic ultrasound, I kind of took to it like a fish took the water. Like some people have the gift to you know, play music. Other people have that gift to do math well there was something about ultrasound and and imaging that just really came simple and easy to me. So I started there. I did that for a couple of years in in the Philadelphia market. And then I moved to South Florida and I met a physician who was doing sclerotherapy, which is the injection of veins to, you know, get rid of them if you would. And this was again, late eighties. It was 88 when I met uh, this physician. Next thing you know, I'm working with him. We're doing some ultrasound and well, then we're doing ultrasound guided sclerotherapy, which was relatively pioneering work at the time. Uh, there was a couple of French folks that had done it before us, but we were the first ones doing it in the States. We took it to the U.S. meetings, popularized it. And as Tony was saying, you do what you love, you do what you're good at. This was just something very simple. And I, we were talking earlier, everybody was saying about being a little bit of gratitude about where you were. I just happened to land at the right place at the right time. And through the development of, you know, that process, we learned a lot about venous anatomy. We learned a lot specifically about vein therapy. Uh, Come the turn of the century, we had RFA, uh, radio frequency, and laser ablation started. I wound up being with a very good partner friend, John Moriello, and we started some vein clinics together. Nick actually came and visited us, you know, in our clinics. Uh, I met Tony along the way at some of the conferences that we went to, and As we started, you know, kind of popularizing or or talking about this this technology, if you would, we, you know, would go to the the meetings and we'd give our lectures and be part of the educational force, if you would, to share the knowledge. Ironically, I know one of the really interesting quotes that I love to talk about was from a dear past friend, Hugo Parsh, who I believe was 2004, said that, you know, ultrasound was one of the most significant contributions to the field of phlebology in the last 10 years. And from there, it was just really amazing because, again, involved with the the medical societies, the teaching, the education, I started writing papers, and I actually have a couple of textbooks all about ultrasound, ultrasound diagnosis. My business partner, Dr. Moriello, retired. I wound up joining medical industry, and I work with a, a device manufacturer at this point. But over that entire period, the two folks that we're talking with today have become the best of friends. And we traveled the world together. We've seen and done some amazing things, and it's just been an amazing ride.
2: Really cool. So, tell. Speaking of traveling the world, so patient care is so general. You start. Tell us you started in uh, what you started in, and how you ended up in the in the vein world with these characters.
1: Yeah. yeah so it was characters, right? Um, so I uh, uh, I, I uh, finished medical school, did an internship variety of uh, specialties and then started my surgical training and went through uh, four years of general surgery training. Practiced as a general surgeon here in the uh, Tempe area for uh, 20 plus years, about age 50. Talked to another general surgery friend who had started to do some vein work because all we had at the the time was stripping and things were starting to change. So we took a look at that and uh, decided we were going to move in that direction, and we did. Uh, It was a leap of faith to do that because I'd been doing insurance-based general surgery work for a very long time. So at that point, my wife, Terry, and I decided to set up a vein clinic here in the Southeast Valley, and we ran our own practice for about 20-plus years and then went to work for a uh, company for about four or five years and then retired in January. Very happily, I should say. <laughs> Although I have to say, I I really, really loved doing what I did for so long. Um, I loved doing general surgery, but when I when I went to uh, Venus work, I didn't miss general surgery a bit. And people now ha- are asking me, "Do you miss do you miss work?" And I said, "Not one bit. Huh. I'm having too much fun." Yeah,
2: that's really cool. I probably <laughs> learned that from you. Is continue to do what you love until you don't love it anymore. And, or, you know, like be passionate about it. You and mom both were so passionate about what you were doing. Uh, And that's why I say, I never make a five-year plan. (laughs) All my coaches are probably like pulling their hair out with me saying that, but, but I always stick to what I am doing, you know, what I love doing until it's not a passion until I don't like it anymore and then move on.
1: Tony, have you ever had a five-year plan? (laughs)
3: Please. That's my favorite interview question though when I was interviewing, like, because you'd find the job listing, right? Yeah. And then you put in your resume and you get on the schedule. And that maybe takes 30 to 45 days and you get your resume up and you know, all your references and the sit down with the people and H. so tell me what your 5 year plan is. My <laughs> response was always well 46 days ago I didn't even know who you were. <laughs> so now you want to know how what you really want to know is how I'm shifting my plan from 46 or 47 days ago to how it's now going to include you. I don't I don't really know that. I I I can I can tell you what I can tell you what some of the wrong answers are. I can't tell you what some of the, what the right answers are. Cause the older you get, Nick, you know, this there's multiple right answers to questions, multiple right, but you know what? You definitely know what some of the wrong ones are. Yeah. Don't step there, but yeah. you could possibly step there,
0: there, there. Right. So yeah, a five-year plan. No clue. Joe. A uh, five-year plan. No, I usually don't. I don't think I've ever thought that way to be quite honest with you. and, It's interesting now that you're asking to retrospectively look back at life. And again, I'm going to go back to the word gratitude and luck, because I just seem to luck into the right thing at the right time and meet the right people. And I think that's also where the passion part comes in as well. Because if you're having fun and you're enjoying what you're doing, okay, and you're, you're, you've got a good positive outlook and people sense that and feel that in you, then like networking and, and, you know, interacting with people becomes second nature and easy. And then there's a lyric from a Van Morrison song, I think that says something about pieces falling into place. And that's what it feels like life is done. It just fell into place. So yeah, yeah. five-year plan, Mm, sorry.
2: (laughs) Good, I'm in good company then.
0: (laughs) That's not the same thing as
3: saying you don't have demons in your head. (laughs) I I think it's important to say, because this isn't, our friendships are not Pollyanna. We're not every day calling each other up and say, you look really great in a pink shirt, Joe. Gosh, aren't we lucky? Aren't we This thing? We have many, many demons every day I don't have enough zeros in my checkbook. I have plenty, but not what I think I should have and certainly not compared to other people in the world. And then in other categories, uh Joe and I would switch on some of those topics. So let the audience understand it's not like we don't struggle with with demons cuz that voice inside your head is not always your best friend.
1: Let me come back again uh to that all three of us uh in and all of my family for that matter have done this uh charity work. So we leave for uh, for a week or two, go to Central or South America, work our butts off for a a week or two to uh, deliver medical care to people who have no access to it and were would never have it and to, both Tony Joe have been on many of the many of those trips Kelly's been on several of them uh, as they have other uh, members of our family so uh, it's a thing that Terry and I started I think it was in 1989 and we've been doing it pretty much ever since but that's a that's a whole lot of fun. it's a tremendous amount of work and it's very very gratifying work to do uh, but uh, it's it's a whole lot of fun with those those two.
2: Well, I was just going to say, right, you pick your—you meet these people, like you said— to, uh, Joe, and you get to network the, them and you see it's really easy. Well, it's really easy for the people that you like to be around. Yeah. It makes it really easy. And then you just build your life around what are, what are we traveling together? What are we, you know, what yeah. are we going to do giving back? That's a, that's a big win in life, I think, is if you can play with the same people that you work with and enjoy with and give back with. I yeah. mean, that's a big deal.
1: And uh, I've always, I've organized these trips and And uh, I choose people very carefully. And it's those people that I know that I've worked with who are really, really good at what they do and are fun to be around. Because it's a stressful situation when we go down there. It's a whole lot of work. uh, And uh, we're seeing some very, very sick patients. But if you have people who are really, really good with you, it's a lot more fun than it is work.
2: And you guys get to go again this summer. And continue yeah. on from COVID. That was sad, not get to yeah. not getting to go for a couple of years. Yeah,
1: and, it was. We're, we're really looking forward to getting back. First of July. Yeah. Michaela and Josh are coming. Yeah, I
2: know. Coming. I get I am really
0: fair once again.
2: I'm really <laughs> excited for them to get to experience what I experience. It's there's not many people in the world that get to experience that as a kid, that yeah. the importance of giving back the People don't live the same way as we live. You know, things are, are not, uh, you know, all of it. It's just there were so many lessons along the way. And I said to my sister the other day, I said, you know, well, we, we, not the other day, you know, a couple months ago, and we were trying to decide about to send them, you know, to have them go. And she said, it was life changing. I said, that's exactly why I'm having my kids go because it is life changing to provide free medical care, free help to people that would never in a million years be able to get access to it.
3: Yeah. Kelly, I have a question for you. So I've brought my kids along on these trips too when they're in their 14, 15 year old age span. And they, all four of them, have commented that it's amazing how happy the people are in Nicaragua and were where I took them. And yet they have so little, but they seem to laugh with each other more and and be happier and smiling or in the back of a truck, you see them going down the road in the back of a truck. And these are happy, happy people. It was life-changing for my kids in that respect that here they are in, in a very opulent society. And, and, and we lived in Chicago at the time and and um, and complaining about things when these kids just seemed when nobody was watching seemed to be happy. Did you have that same kind of observation when you would go?
2: Oh yeah, and the, the coming back and going, I'm never complaining about that again. You know, yeah. I mean, and I went, I went at least five or six times, and one of the times spent a whole month down there. You know, um, before you guys came or after you guys came, I can't remember. And just living in that environment makes you so much um, more accepting and more worldly. I know that's a no, word. <laughs> like there's no judgment, you know, after that. There was no judgment of anybody anymore, you know, of how people are, who's what, what. I don't know. It just took away all of that for me that that peop- I loved since then traveling the world and seeing all the different cultures. I love culture because of it.
0: I I want to tag on to that, if I may, just from a standpoint of, again, the world traveling, the seeing the different cultures, the things that you guys just pointed out about understanding how other people live and they're happy and they enjoy life. And then, you know, we think about it, Tony, you even mentioned earlier a little bit about the demons that get in our own brains and then slow us down and what we complain about or whatever. And it's interesting because. Uh, Hey, I'm sure they have bad days down there too, but it's such a different life and it gives you such an appreciation that it is about your own personal outlook and how you encounter whatever it is that shows up in your life. The other thing I wanted to add about that because of the the benefit that the children, if you would, of the physicians and, and folks that go on these trips have enjoyed is that idea of the exposure to the other cultures and it may not be a very popular idea, but I always thought the idea of a gap year between high school and college would be wonderful. And that kids should actually get that year. It should be a government funded thing or something such that they do world travel. They see how other parts of the world are, and then they can start that trip through college or work or technical college or whatever it is. Because usually when people start working, they're at the grind, you know, for 50 years, like Nick was, like Tony and I are every single day. And, and there's an appreciation that um, you get when you travel and you see these other folks and the other cultures and how they live. that It just really sets into your brain how to appreciate what you have and where you are every single day. So just mm-hmm. a, a little side tidbit there.
2: That's why we're pushing Joshua to go have that gap year and go world travel. He's, he's saving up his money, a bunch of money, so he can go travel and do that on purpose, you know, to, to be able to experience life and experience the world and then decide what you want to do, you know, see where your passions lie. I think that's, that's really cool. All right. So people who don't know, this is a philanthropy. This is a trip. We back up a little bit and tell what the roles are of everybody and what's the purpose.
1: We gather a bunch of specialists to go down and uh, do medical care for people who just can't afford it. We travel at our own expense. It usually costs uh, in the range of uh, $50,000 to $75,000 to, to make the trip. It's free to everybody who comes in. The group is carefully chosen, always with some young younger folks, to help and teach and get exposure to, first of all, a, a purely uh, – philanthropic, altruistic effort. There's, there's no, no gain other than what you, what you get, which is tremendous, the, the feelings that you get from people who are so, so appreciative of what you do. And then uh, when we get down there, we function as a team because we've chosen people carefully. It's a very well-oiled machine that gets, gets in there. We always sometimes feel like we're invading because we're, uh, we have people who work there and live there help with the, the work and, and we'll teach them as we, as we go along. But one of the other things that uh, um, that all three of us have been really involved in are uh, education. And so Joe and I have been involved in these Venus Associations and we spent our careers teaching uh, uh, everything and researching and because and, uh, we were both very, very inquisitive. And then along those lines, Tony is uh, just as inquisitive as anybody and uh, uh, has come to the uh, teaching mode kind of a different way.
2: And you get to teach all those people down there what you're doing so that hopefully they will take take it away and – Translator, my kids will be the translators. Uh, so that's why yeah. kids kids go either for grunt work to to be the lifters and the, <laughs> or the or the translators. We even got to take cat, you know, take stuff out in the recovery room. We got to work in the recovery room. We got to do more. My girlfriend who went through medical school after the fact said I got to do more down there in a week than I did all the way through medical school. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then we had them scrubbed in surgery. Loved it. Loved to give them that experience.
2: The teaching on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And there's been several of the children that, um, even though you would think there's a, that's a natural path, but several of them who have been, you know, children of physicians who wound up going to medical school themselves, yes. right? And they really looked at the um, huge benefit and learning opportunity uh, of being in that, you know, environment with the caliber of people, you know, doing that volunteer work. And um, and then again, uh, you know, not, not to understate it, but Tony has probably taught as many, if not more people than anyone (laughs) so much about how to do vein ablations as, as one of the, you know, most senior sales guys in the laser world that, 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 you know, has been around since the start of time, if you would. And, uh, Tony's education and what he can teach people is amazing.
3: Well, I like to just sprinkle lots of jokes in between the the procedures. So
1: what is your tater tot recipe, by the way? (laughs) So to explain that patients don't generally don't speak any English. And so Tony, who doesn't speak one lick of Spanish, will talk to them as we're as we're doing the procedure because they're all done under local anesthesia. And Tony will talk to him. And he generally starts out by saying, so what is your teeter-tot recipe? And the patient looks at him like they have no idea what he said, but within a few minutes, the patient is laughing and carrying on as Tony is laughing and carrying on, and we're we're trying to get a procedure done. <laughs> what time is
3: dinner? What time should we be over? Yeah, bring something. What should we bring?
2: Verbal anesthesia, right?
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, I hope Josh and Michaela are ready for that because they're going to have to translate my jokes.
2: Yeah, they they'll be ready. <laughs> they'll be ready. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Accomplishments. Uh, if you look back on your on your time. What would you say would be your top couple greatest accomplishments?
1: Hmm. What I do very well is motivate young people. So it started with the kids, and uh, as they grew older, and then uh, younger people in the field. I'm a very good motivator of young people, and that's, uh, uh, that's something I think I, I got from my Jesuit training in high school, college, and medical school. Uh, but it was, uh, it, it's something that, as you know, I'm not a proud person at all. But I really, really uh, think I've done a really good job doing that.
2: Especially, you know, I don't know previously, obviously, in general surgery, but in veins, having having the practice and having people come train and mentor. And you've seen a lot of the people that we trained at, at Morrison Bay Institute come yeah. now and have their own practices yeah. and all the things. I mean, that's a, that's a big, yeah. that's a really cool, really cool accomplishment. Well, certainly
3: Nick Sedona days would have to be well, one of your major, because And if you don't mind me, I'll set that up. There's medical conferences all over the place and all over the country, all over the world on various subject matters or or disciplines. And most of them are sort of uh, like asking your wife if you look good today or do I look fat? She's just going to say, no, you look great. And there's a lot of like, there's not a lot of discerning of information. So Nick put together basically an anti-Congress the opposite of that where he puts 40 to 50 doctors into a room very limited topics very uh and designed to de- be debated amongst peers and what comes out of that meeting is so so beneficial for everyone who attends i don't think you'll ever fully i know you have an appreciation for it but it'll be years and years and years uh, to fully understand what an anti-congress is, there's no vendors, there's no industry there. It's just doctors in a room talking about their mistakes or talking about something they read that they disagree with, something that's common knowledge that that just doesn't make sense to them, and uh, it's all in the vein business. So maybe you could talk about that. I think that's a major thing that you've contributed for professionally.
1: Yeah, thanks, Tony. It's, it's certainly been a labor of love for sure. These are all people who are very, very good in their field uh, who come and uh, and learn from each other. And the smartest person in the world can learn something from the guy sitting next to him, the person to sitting next to him. We have lots of women who come accomplished and can teach us all.
0: all right. I think one of the best descriptions too I've heard recently about that meeting is that, like Tony mentioned earlier, your typical medical conference is a key opinion leader, a key thought leader, if you would, at the podium, teaching a room full of people. And here, actually, what Nick has done is brought together a group of key opinion leaders to push the envelope, to talk about things that are maybe a little controversial or where the science needs to go. What do we look at next? Where can we learn more and improve what we're doing so that the care gets better as well? Everything from basic science to differences in, you know, how to approach a problem, if you would. So fantastic. And again, at that point, you're talking about peers teaching and educating each other, not, for instance, a professor at the front of the room teaching the students at a conference. So fantastic environment.
2: What a cool thing. That could be so, that could be replicated in so many industries. Absolutely. I'm sure it is in in certain ones, but I'm thinking, my head's spinning already. Ooh, how can I do that? (laughs) Right. for, For our industry. But that, that's different than like you're going to the conference and it's all fluff or sometimes you get good content, right? But you can't have a back and forth discussion. You're just taking it in and not working through it to decide, is that the best way to do things? I, I think yeah. uh I think you're right Tony. I think that's going to be a long time uh legacy for sure.
1: One of the things that you do is choose people carefully who won't dominate and then at the start of the meeting I always say leave your egos at the door. You come in here everybody's everybody's going to learn from everybody else and uh and I I try to uh uh make sure that that happens.
2: That's really really cool. Okay, what about you Tony? Any any, along the way, any significant accomplishments that stick out?
3: If I have one thing I'm most proud of in my life, it's probably my marriage to Terry. 32 years in a couple days. Uh, Four children who are seemingly well-balanced and coping with life. Uh, anybody who's married knows that this is a full-time job. It's never a Cinderella story. You work at it all the time. He became empty nesters, moved to Idaho, and it just keeps getting better but it's always a direct relationship to the work i put into that and the work terry's put into that and uh, so i think i'm probably most most proud of that i'm probably wealthier than most men in that regard and the friends i've been able to collect through the years there's an old saying if you have one or two friends at the end of your life that's really good i have a lot a lot of friends that i could call today and i've always tried to be that good friend be accountable to those friends. And if the friendship is in a hard time for some reason, not just move on. So stick, stick through that. So in business, I've done lots of things. I'm proud of all my work with in the vein business and stuff. And I'm proud that I think I've built a reputation in 20 some years that uh, you're going to get the straight truth from me, even if uh, I don't benefit it from it financially. And that's not always true in the circles that we run
2: any industry right we, we don't yeah. know how if the truth is actually 100% coming out or or not because of all the kickbacks inside things and you know they have so spiffs and all the things right if you if yeah. there's so much on in the my, background
3: In my medical companies I have a saying that says there's a human being at the end of all of our products and I don't mean the doctor that's holding the fiber I mean his patient and whoever you are, whether it's a, a in-office vein procedure or a gallbladder or a prostatectomy, that person is nervous the night before and scared. And so is their loved one. And somebody had to take off work. And somebody had to arrange their schedules to get there. And if our shipping department screws up the shipment and it doesn't get there on time, that means they have to postpone that surgery. Or the doctor has to explain, I'm going to do it a different way because X, Y, or Z. And that kind of bad karma in the world, uh, we take great precautions to protect or diminish. Sometimes it happens, but we just have to remember that these are human beings at the end of our products, not just a laser fiber that goes out. So I'm kind of proud about that.
2: Really cool. All right. You're up, Joe. Accomplishments along the way. Obviously,
0: there's been some good things spoken about. You know, the friends you've met along the way, uh, certainly... Huge. And like Tony said, you know, that, that, you know, there's that saying about how many friends you have. And I, I don't, I don't know, I want to necessarily list them out, but right. I think I got a few. And that works. Um, I, I think the thing that I get most excited about when I look back is again, being a little immodest. This is difficult, but I think it's the impact that I've had on patients. And what I mean by that is like when when I was seeing patients and treating them you know, you're making people healthy, right? You're you're doing a procedure, they're improving, their lives are better, they feel better, they're more active, etc. cetera. Nick, you can expand, so can you, Tony, on this. And it was kind of interesting because when my business partner, Dr. Moriello, retired, I was kind of like, well, now what am I gonna do? And I wound up going into industry and I never really thought about it before, but in some ways I've actually been able to impact even more because I've been able to continue to educate and teach. And that information, that knowledge has spread now. So it's that whole kind of pollination idea. It's not necessarily that I'm touching every single patient and that I'm helping that, but there's a lot of people now, not only because of what I do with industry, but with the American College of Phlebology, which is now American Vein and Lymphatic Society and the education that we did there and, and, and all those things. And there's just a tremendous amount of people every day that are receiving care we helped actually you know train and coach and mentor a lot of those folks that are you know taking care of hundreds of patients every year so uh, I think that's for me one of the the you know one of the things that really makes me feel good
2: That's really really cool you guys both talked about patients and and how how it sprinkles and how it continues is there a, a story that you can think of that comes top of mind of a patient that you treated that sticks out for you that was a kind of a life changing for them.
1: Maybe not, maybe not one, but as as I'm retired and have some time to uh, to uh, think about things, I'm thinking that I have a great appreciation for the patients who were helped by what I did and. The impact that I made, not the impact that they tell me that I made on their lives. I I didn't uh, when I when I was working. I'm not sure I I appreciated that much. I'm 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 seeing that more now.
2: And especially as you were retiring, a lot of them. That you at least still talk to got to tell you those things,
1: yeah, uh, I, I heard heard and and read a lot of things from uh, from nice people and continue to do so because Terry is still working, and she sees some of the patients that I treated, and she hits uh, compliments. I get compliments from them
2: and people in the industry, doctors, anytime I would travel with you guys working you know, in the practice or in the practice out in the field, you know, and doing the marketing constant. Oh my gosh. I love your dad. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The amount of comments I got about how much impact you've had on the industry and, and them and in patients and alike. I, I, it, there wasn't a week that I was out in, in anything that I didn't hear that comment. Yeah. Well, that was very nice, a very proud, I was a very proud daughter.
3: <laughs> it's really funny, Kelly, because your dad is not interested in any of those accolades from. I know. Years. He wants like nothing, he hides. And I, I don't forget what trade show it was, but I was going to meet Nick for a drink and I was in the elevator and got out, and I saw the, this guy, I knew, and he goes, oh, my God, I just rode the elevator with Nick Morrison. <laughs> I said, really? All of, our, all of his friends call him Booger. But go ahead.
2: <laughs> go ahead, ride the elevator with him. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. What about you guys, Tony, Joe, anything that sticks out, any story? Well,
0: I'll go first, if you don't mind, Tony. It goes back to, actually, our volunteer trips to Central America. The very first time I went, you know, we talked about this uh, earlier, but um, it, it's a statement that actually gets me a little almost every time I think about it. But the very first time I went, Nick had been several you know years before, and he invited me along, and we went down, and of course, even though th- that you know we've heard those stories about Tony and his brownie recipe discussions, we get done doing uh, treatment on um you know one of these nice little. Aztec people from the mountains that would come down to see us, and she said something. Didn't understand what she said, and you can tell it's, it's it gets me every time I think about it. She said, "Your payment will come from the gods."
1: It's a common thing that we hear down there. Uh, I've forgotten what the what it, what it is in Spanish, but it's it's you, you always take that in.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's an amazing thing to 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 know that. They appreciate you so much for what you're doing, and we're, you know, just giving them great care and fantastic thought.
2: There's the karma. <laughs> we'll joke about, about it
1: sometimes. The The patient will finish, will finish the procedure, and the patient will get up and give Joe a great big hug. And I'm standing back there saying, what about me? <laughs>
2: They don't think you're approachable, maybe for the hug. Maybe you don't look like you want a hug. <laughs> Tony, what about you? Anything that sticks out?
3: I think two of these trips uh, are really impactful. This one patient chatting with her through the interpreter and stuff. Let it be known that she traveled. She didn't have a car. she had to take two buses, sleep at her sister's house and a donkey or something. Um, and she lived four and a half hours away. And they don't make appointments. And like, if our flights are canceled, like, she's still got to go back. So, the people that are being recruited right now, even while we're on this radio show, there's people planning to meet us at the clinic. And so, it strikes me really deep to think that I might have a medical condition that I have to start planning on now for July 4th. If I'm, I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho right now where I sit. So four hours from here would be halfway to Boise, right? Or call it all the way to Kalispell, that I would have to figure out how to walk there or take a bus or two buses with the hope that the medical doctor there would see me and then hope that he could do something for me and hope that I'll feel better at the end of that. It's something we totally take for granted here in America. You could call, Kelly, if, you're, if your kids need a doctor's appointment, you call up and get on the schedule with the next opportunity and you go. So things like that. And then a conversation I had with our late uh, friend, Ted King, at the Managua Airport coming back. And Ted uh, had run a vein clinic in Oakbrook, Illinois, with very high-end patients there. I said, do you ever have a hard time transitioning back? because? Those patients are like, do you see this small vein here? I can't get through the day because of this vein. And we just took maggots out of somebody's uh, medial bialis ulcer. And the, the contrast is really striking for me, the duality
1: of it. You know, when I organize those trips, what I tell people is don't bring your expectations down here because they don't apply down here. And the yeah. same thing is true. When you go back home, don't take what you were doing here and all of the gratitude that you got and try to apply it back home because this isn't gonna work either. <laughs>
2: right. <Yeah. laughs> lessons, right? You can apply the lessons probably yeah. mentally, but but not the not the gratitude. So all of you are in healthcare over the last decades of of working in healthcare. Tell us some of the Good, the bad, and the ugly you've seen, and what you hope for the future of of healthcare as, as we all age and need it more.
1: I'll, I'll start. Uh, one of the things, all of the changes that I've seen in, in medical care have been, for the most part, remarkably positive. They've helped patients do better, be healthier. One of the things that I regret now, when I see it myself as a patient. Is that it's much less personal than it was before. Of a fellow that I had known for many years and practiced, I went in to see him as a patient, and it was ten minutes before he looked up from his computer and saw me and said, Oh, Nick, I didn't know it was you. So that's a shame
2: it's a big shame. That's that's definitely where it's going. The advancements obviously the alternate. you know the other thing is that the advancements of technology I assume have made it like you said significantly better in that in that regard. What do you hope to see anything on the horizon that you hope to see in healthcare in, in general or specifically? Oh
1: yeah, the, the advancements are really exciting and still go on and it's it's one thing after another after another. Uh, That you read about the the most recent, the COVID, they managed to develop an entirely new kind of vaccine that absolutely took care of the problem in a matter of months, as opposed to the years and decades that it usually took to develop vaccines.
2: That's a big deal. All right, Tony. I always say uh,
3: one of my favorite conversations when I'm standing in a clinic like Nick's next Nick, I stand next to the patient and I chat them up and uh, I usually find out how old they are. Um I usually get on a topic that today in America is the best time to ever have stage four cancer in the history of the planet. Yeah. If you're diagnosed with that, that's that's a that's a terrible experience to go through. Be comforted that that it's never been a better time to have that disease. And I give this example that penicillin was only first used on human beings in 1941. So just at the beginning of World War II, it wasn't used in any large quantity till the end of the war. And that's one lifetime So my dad, who just passed away, was born in 1940. So within one person's lifetime, we went from the discovery of penicillin to not using it anymore. We don't even use penicillin really anymore. We're on our fourth or fifth generation of antibiotic. And look at what we're doing now. It's argued that the first open-heart surgery was successfully done on one of the beaches going into uh, Normandy when a surgeon sewed his leather glove into the myocardium and walked away thinking that the patient had died, but to find out he survived. Now we can change out your mitral valve by making a small incision in your leg going up into your heart, trading that out and sending you home. Today, if, you, if you're if you a stage four quadriplegic, which means you're uh, Reeves in a wheelchair, right? You can actually make money for your family through technology. You can drive around the house. You can get in a car. You can go places. 20 years ago, that wasn't possible. That was not okay. I can't wait to see what the next 20, 30 years are going to be like in medicine. It's changing so fast for for the good. Sadly, with everything good, there's something bad. Somebody abuses that system. And we see that like in the amount of paperwork Nick has to do just to treat somebody and then becomes less connected to those patients. But I think that's uh, probably the most remarkable thing I've seen in the last, in my time in medicine, just this change for the good in technology, what we can do.
2: That's great. I love hearing those examples. All right, Joe, what about you?
0: Honestly, I'm not sure there's much to add. (laughs) These guys covered it so well. I think both of the things that were brought up were exactly the cutting edge things. I mean, you think about the way we're doing procedures now and and you know the advanced technologies, et cetera, fantastic. But I gotta tell you, I also agree hundred percent with Nick. There's almost a certain amount of humanity that seems to have gone away. You know, we we reminisce a little bit about um, what is it? There's that TV show. I think it's called Me TV, that station. And you can see like Marcus Well, BMD or Leave it to Beaver and, you know, those simpler times. And for as much as technology has done for us, it also seems like, uh, you know, not only in medicine, but in social situations too, we've become almost a little bit more isolated and things like this. So, you know, the, the old ways of doing things and really getting to know your doctor and having him know you and your family, et cetera. Those are some of the things that are getting kind of lost in the mix, if you would. Um, so, again, some of the good, some of the bad.
2: Hopefully that the people will continue to see that and maybe there's some shift in bringing the humanity back. You know, I mean, that would be really cool to hope, you know, that you could bring some humanity back.
1: Yeah, one of the things it's uh, ongoing right now is um, more and more. Uh, medical schools are encouraging people both financially and uh, motivationally to go into primary care when they can where they can spend more time and really get to know the patient and the family and uh, and make a career out of that. So that's one positive thing that's going on.
2: Yeah. That's really good. Can you believe we've been talking for almost an hour? <laughs> it goes by so fast, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Any last thoughts? Dad, uh, before we close out the show.
1: No, thanks, and I'm proud of you.
2: Oh, <laughs> thank you, Tony. Or I'm Orton. proud of you
1: too, Kelly.
3: <laughs> Little <laughs> Kelly, after 20 years of hard work, you're an overnight success.
2: <laughs> That's what you said, right? The the demons and all the things that people don't see in the front, right? That's right. <laughs> the overnight success after 20 years of hard work. <laughs> I love it. Well, I really appreciate all of you being on. Um, Nick does not want to be uh, <laughs> contacted at all unless you want him to teach, right? Oh,
1: actually, email's fine.
2: <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, tell everybody your email.
1: <laughs> it's Morrison 2002 at yahoo.com. Don't text me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we won't give anybody your phone number. <laughs> all right, Tony, what about you? How can people get a hold of you?
1: You can call me.
3: I'm old school. I'd like to talk to people, right, Kelly?
2: <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, I sent Kelly an email. Hey, could you call me about this radio show coming up? She sends me an email back. That's not what I for. <laughs> 630-630-803-6383. I promise I'll pick up.
2: <laughs> Thank you, Tony. I know. I'm all about email. <laughs> Joe, what about you? How do we get a hold of you?
0: I have a very simple email. My last name starts with a Z and and it's V-E-I-N-Z at AOL.com. That's how it's, long you've
2: been in
0: Veins. <laughs> that's how long I've been in Veins. That's right. Still <laughs> I, I just want to say thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to chat with these guys, but uh wonderful to chat with you as well, Kelly, and uh to be part of your show today. So thank you.
2: Thank you you so much for listening to Collaborative Connections, radio show and podcast sponsored by KLM. Do what you love and outsource the rest. Until next time, happy connecting.